at Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, this is your word. So we pray that you would bless it and empower it by the Holy Spirit's presence so that we would be sanctified through it, conformed more and more to the image of your dear Son. Work powerfully through your word this morning. In our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not really a puzzle person, but I love and live with a puzzle family. My wife and each of my children all enjoy doing puzzles, and so it's not uncommon for me to walk into my dining room after a, a, you know, getting off work one day and, and see a puzzle box propped up on the table and a, a mess of puzzle pieces next to it waiting to be put together. And as I've been reading Genesis 2, 18 through 25 this last week, I've been struck by the fact that reading this passage that, that, and then looking at our lives and marriages can sometimes feel kind of like that. And what we've been seeing here in Genesis 2 so far is a, really a picture of how life was and how it should be. And what we're about to read in Genesis 2 here is marriage as it was and as it should be. Marriage pre-sin, pre-curse, pre-fall. Marriage without all of the complications and confusions that living in a post-Genesis 3 world brings. And it can feel kind of like looking at that picture on the box of a puzzle. You know, it's, it's put together, it's orderly, it's beautiful, but then sometimes when we look at our lives and at our marriages, it can sometimes feel a little more like the pile of pieces next to the box, can't it? Then that shouldn't dissuade us from looking at Genesis 2 here, because what we'll be seeing here this morning are some of God's good intentions for His creation and, and His design for our lives and for marriage. And even more, we see here something of His plan to put us back together again. And so let's dig in with open hearts and open ears to Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy in precious word, let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the words of our God here in Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is now our seventh Sunday in the book of Genesis. We began by looking at God as the creator of the cosmos and how in the beginning he created everything in the heavens and on the earth. And then we looked at how in six creation days he took what he had made and brought it all to good order, making all things beautifully and brilliantly, and particularly on the sixth day how God created man in his own image. Which in part means that as human beings that we've been created with a distinct worth and value as human creatures. And it means that we've been created as intelligent beings and as moral beings and as relational beings. And as such, we've been commissioned and called by God to represent his kingship in the earth by giving further order to this world. To cultivate and develop and fill this world similar to how our God was doing there in the beginning. And all of that was meant to serve to the praise and honor and glory of God as the creator and king of all things. That's what we saw in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. But then as we moved on to Genesis 2, we've been seeing here the emphasis and the vantage point of creation change a little bit. And the change has shown us that God is not only the creator king, but also that he's our covenant Lord. And that he's created us to live in communion with himself, that he's created us to live in and enjoy his presence. He created us to live in covenant relationship with himself forever. But now this morning, we we come to see not just Genesis 2's depiction of humanity in relationship to God, but also its depiction of humanity in relationship to one another, and primarily in, in the relationship of marriage, although we'll also seek to apply this message a bit more broadly a bit as well. But, but here, as we said before, we see something of God's intentions in creating and designing marriage. We see marriage pre-fall, pre-curse, pre-sin. And in looking at this, this marriage made in paradise, we see that marriage was created and designed and ordained by God for partnership and calling, for intimacy and companionship, and as an enduring covenant, for calling, companionship, and covenant. That's what we're going to look at this morning, taking each in turn. But first, we're looking here at marriage as a partnership and calling. As you may have noticed, our passage starts in verse 18 with a problem, which is meant to, to startle us a little, I, I think. If you think about this for a moment, in, in a world where, where everything is good, right? Where in everything we've been seeing up to this point has been good, right? God created in Genesis 1, and what's the refrain we see again and again there? And God saw that it was good. Yes, you're alive and awake this morning, I see. On the end of the sixth day, right, he added not only that it was good, but that it was very good. This is a world where everything is good, even very good, but now hitting our ears like a record scratch, you know, 
That's really bad. Uh, but something is all of a sudden not good. What is not good? It is not good that man should be alone. And immediately following this assessment, we find Adam fulfilling part of his divinely ordained calling and vocation, don't we? We see in verses 19 and 20 there, Adam naming the animals. And if you'll remember in Genesis 1, uh, we, we saw that bestowing a name upon something in the Bible is often the sign of one's authority over the thing being named. In Genesis 1, God named day and night and land and sky and sea, and that was meant to show something of the authority of uh, his kingship over those domains, right? But, but as he's entrusted humanity with authority over earthly things, the man here now begins to name the animals. And in this, we're, we're meant to recall here that Adam has been given a particular calling, a vocation. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, humanity was there created in the image and likeness of God, and we were given this mandate in verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? We sometimes call this the cultural mandate. And this cultural mandate, and this cultural mandate, God called Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more people and to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. In other words, just as God had been forming and filling the earth in Genesis 1, he has now called humanity to be like him and to do the same, to further form and fill the earth, to create art and business and farms, and governments, and education, and technology, to build buildings, and plant gardens, and have children, all because we've been made in the image of the God who creates, and forms, and fills. And then additionally, of course, verse 18 here in Genesis 2 immediately follows verses 15 to 17, duh, those verses we looked at last week, but there we saw that Adam was also called and commissioned by God to do a particularly sacred work. He was called to this sacred vocation of working and keeping the garden. Remember with me how, how, how this garden is here depicted as a divine temple wherein humanity meets with and communes with the living God. And in being called to work and keep the garden, Adam is shown to be a priest of this garden. Just as we see the priests of the tabernacle later in Numbers 3 called to work and keep the same. Adam is here a sacred priest called to be a steward of divine things in this temple of God. So I want us to see here that Adam has been called to do really important, big jobs. He's been given a garden temple to work and keep and a whole world to form and fill. And so he's going to need help. He, he, he can't possibly do this on his own. And the animals there, see in verse 20, right? They're not equipped to help him with the kind of help he needs. No, he needs someone like himself to partner with him, to work with and alongside him. And that's why the Lord God says in verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. He needs someone like himself to, to live with him and work with him as a partnership in his vocations. And so the Lord God creates a helper fit for him. And so, just, just so you know here, calling the woman helper, this is not a demeaning thing. I know sometimes it's been kind of portrayed as that, but this is not a denigrating or de degrading thing. No, in fact, the Lord God calls himself a helper to his people 
in various places throughout the Scripture, in places like Job 9 and Psalms 10, 30, 54, 118, as well as in Hosea 13. Jesus repeatedly calls the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Holy Trinity, a helper in John chapters 14 to 16. So, so please don't see this word helper here as being a demeaning or degrading thing. It's, it's not as if the woman is being depicted here as a, as a servant to the man. She's not a helper in the sense that she's a servant to the man as he fulfills his vocation, his calling. No, she's portrayed here as a partner. She's shown here to be like the man in a way that none of, the, uh, uh, none of the animals were unless she alone is fit to partner with him in his callings and vocations, right? But then also she, she's like the man. She's also shown to be slightly different from the man too, isn't she? You can see that in, in how the Lord says that she's a helper fit for him, right? There's, there's an equality here. There's a, a likeness here. The two are equal. That's precisely the point in Adam not finding someone fit for him among the animals. But the woman is also not identical to him, is she? They're equal, but they're not interchangeable, as I trust you can readily see if you just look at a man and a woman standing side by side next to each other. The, the, we're, we're all alike in more ways than we're not, but we're also different in some significant ways, aren't we? And that difference here in Genesis 2.18 is by design. It's meant to be a complementary difference. Uh, complementary not with an I, not in the sense that she was created to say a bunch of nice things about the man, but complementary with an E in the sense that her differences supply what Adam is lacking. And the man and the woman are alike in more ways than they're not, but they're different and they're different in ways that complement each other. And that's true in a number of ways, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. Men and women are alike, but we're different in ways that complement each other. To borrow from the, the puzzle illustration earlier, the man and the woman are kind of like two puzzle pieces that contain the same image, but that fit together in a complementary way. The puzzle pieces are, are the same, right? But they're not the same in every way. They actually have different shapes, and those shapes actually cause them to fit together in a beautiful way, and in a way that actually shows forth the image that they were meant to display in a fuller way, in a way that they wouldn't be able to if they were exactly the same. And this is by design so that the man and the woman can partner together to fulfill humanity's God-given vocation, so that there's mutuality and partnership in our endeavors to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to form and cultivate and order the earth in order to work and keep God's garden temple together. To apply this to our marriages this morning, this is why marriage exists. If I could put it in maybe a bit more of a pithy way, marriage is for mission. Marriage is for mission. If you're married here this morning or if you desire and plan on getting married, you should realize that marriage is for mission. Marriage is a partnership in the callings that God has placed on our lives. And it's important that we realize this because we live in a time of, of splintering and atomization. And just so, oftentimes in our modern world, in this time of extreme individualism, 
our work, our callings can seem splintered and atomized and, and individually catered as well. And because of that, oftentimes we tend to think of calling as solely an individual thing. While marriage and family has more to do with just the people we watch TV with in the evening and sleep in the same house with at night. But no, marriage is a partnership in serving God's purposes in the world together. Alistair Payne points this out when writing that a couple who takes Genesis 1 and 2 seriously as the foundation truth for their marriage will be outward facing. They will spend time together, but also have an open home. They will pray together for others. They will seek between them to raise children who will be useful for God. They will spur each other on in their service of Him. They will be united, in other words, as partners in their calling, complementary in gifting and proclivities, and together serving God's purposes in the world. If you're married, can that be said of your marriage? Are you and your spouse serving God together as partners, together as one? Marriage is for partnership in calling. But then there's also something else here for, for all of us, even those of us who are not in this covenant of marriage. Some of us might not be in the covenant of marriage, but we are in the covenant of church membership, which coincidentally is the new covenant temple of God. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that just as Adam and Eve were called to work and keep the garden there in the beginning, we are called to work and keep in God's temple together, which is the church. All of us have been called to work and keep the church together. Like Adam and Eve were called to do the same there in the, in the beginning. They were called there as priests in this temple of God, working and keeping it together. And we do this in our partnership with one another as co-priests, as co-workers in God's new covenant temple. And we also do so as male and female. And God designed it this way. Because, you know, while we're all alike in more ways than not. We're also different in some important and complementary ways, which means that the unique contributions, the gifts, the proclivities, the voices of both men and women in the church are vital for the ministry and flourishing of our church. You know, we're, we're a complementarian church, and some of you know what that means, and some of you don't, and that's fine. But unfortunately, sometimes conversations about this doctrine can be reduced to, to who can or cannot fill what roles in the home or the church. And those are important to discuss, and we have convictions about that. We've talked about that before, but we sometimes forget to speak to the more positive aspects of our complementarianism, which tells us that men and women are partners in ministry, meant to deploy our diverse gifts for the good of the body. Church members, both men and women, you have gifts, you have abilities, you have some sort of endowment from the Holy Spirit meant to contribute to the life and flourishing of this body of believers, and you're called to deploy those gifts as we live in partners in this calling together. Then back to this marriage here in Genesis 2. We find also here that marriage is not just created and designed for partnership and calling, but also for this purpose of intimacy, of companionship. We saw in Genesis 1 that part of what it means for humanity to be made in the image of God is that we are relational creatures. We were made to know and be known by God as well as to know and be known by one another. 
We were made for human community and connection and companionship, and yet Adam is here alone. And so the earth needs to be filled with more people so that humanity can live in community and companionship, and thus the Lord God creates Eve, so that this human community can become a reality as they're fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the means by which they do that is through this covenant of marriage, which is a particularly intimate human relationship, isn't it? You can see that particularly as you notice the manner in which Eve is made. If you look at verses 21 through 23 here, the Lord causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He puts Adam under divine anesthesia here, right? And while he's sleeping, the Lord administers an interesting surgery. He he, he opens up the flesh on Adam's side. He takes a rib out and then closes the flesh back up. And from this rib, the Lord creates Eve. And after Adam wakes, we find the first song in Scripture. Adam does what we what all of us feel like doing when we sometimes see someone we love, he sings. And his words show this, this, this kind of yearning, this longing, this ache that he felt for what he now finds in front of him. He says, this at last, at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At last, I found what I was looking for. The very longing of my heart has been satisfied. And she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. You see how the manner in which God created Eve speaks to this intimacy and companionship of marriage here. This woman came from Adam's very own body. It doesn't get much more intimate than that. And, and, And so much ink has been spilled on the subject here. Perhaps some of the most famous words come from the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, when he wrote about this passage saying that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be close to him, and near his heart to be beloved. You might think that that's a nice theological sentiment, but that he's reading too much into the passage. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. Either way, taken as a whole, his conclusion is not wrong. There's a certain intimacy to Eve's creation. Which is why this passage goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become pretty close friends. They shall become roommates plus a little extra. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Friends, that's getting at more than just sexual intimacy. Although that's included. This is describing here an entire ecosystem of intimacy. It's describing a relational, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, as well as sexual 
union in which the man and the woman intimately know and are known by one another in this marriage. I know that some of us look at the pile of puzzle pieces. We sometimes feel depicts our lives and and marriages. Some of us are filled with a sense of, of longing for this kind of relationship. And others of us, when we hear this, it, it actually scares us to death. In a post-Genesis 3 world, our relationships, even our marriages, rather than this kind of intimacy, can, can be more so marked by secrecy, cynicism, defensiveness, shame, Hiding, loneliness, guilt, heartache, sometimes even hatred. Some of us are, are, are actually afraid of being seen and known by another. And so we put on masks at church and at work and in our friendships and sometimes even in our homes. If that describes you at all, I'm just going to ask an extremely invasive in question right now. How do you feel like that's working out for you? My guess is probably it's not working out very well. You probably don't feel like you're flourishing. You probably feel isolated and lonely because, listen, You were made for a naked, without shame kind of intimacy. You were made to be seen and known and loved by another. For those of us who are married, are are you and your spouse, are you cultivating this kind of relationship? Is there real openness and vulnerability between you? And this this is so important. I, I know... You know, we just talked about marriage as a partnership and calling, and it truly is. But I'm afraid that some of us might have heard that and gotten excited about that thought while this intimacy piece is, is making us extremely uncomfortable. Listen, as, as marriage moves out into the world on mission, it should never do so at the expense of intimacy of relationship. In fact, I'll go further Listen, a marriage on mission together in the world should actually be an overflow of a life of relational intimacy in marriage. It it should be an overflow of a shared life of delight and warmth and closeness, not entirely unlike the way our God created in the beginning, out of an overflow of his triune abundance. And so I ask you again, married couples, are you cultivating this kind of oneness in your marriage? Are you you opening yourselves up to one another? Are you sharing your hearts and your fears and your desires and your needs, or are you closed off? Are you aloof? Are you unapproachable and defensive, keeping your spouse at arm's length out of fear of being truly seen and known? You will never know the kind of joy and flourishing possible in your marriage if you are not courageous enough to let yourself be known. 
And that's true not just in the covenant of marriage, but also in our covenant relationships together as church members. We should live in this kind of intimacy of companionship and our relationship together as church members too. Not exactly like husband and wife, of course. I need to be very clear about that. Not some, getting into some weird cult stuff here. I'm not even saying that we, should, we need to be extremely close to every other person in our church family, but among our community of saints here, are, are there maybe one or two or maybe a few that deeply know us and that we deeply know? Are there saints here at Veritas that know you, Christian? That know your besetting sins, your temptations, that know your doubts and sufferings and longings, that you've given permission to ask you hard questions and hold you accountable and, and also know specifically how to care for you while you're hurting. Do, do you have relationships like that here in this community? And again, this is important to ask because it's entirely possible that some of us might be tempted to busy ourselves with church activities and serving and doing things in the name of Jesus, all good. But we might do so at times, all the while keeping each other at arm's length as a way of protecting ourselves from being truly known and, 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 and by others in the church. All the while looking pretty good because we're busy for Jesus. And yet we're not flourishing, we're not enjoying the life that we were created and designed to have here in Genesis 2, a life of knowing and being known by others in a real relationship. Maybe there's some difficult conversations that we need to have in light of this. In our marriages, in our community groups, maybe there's some needs and desires that need to be expressed and made known. Maybe, maybe some of us need to do the hard and seemingly humiliating work of opening ourselves up to others in an intimate may, way. Maybe we need to seek help from more seasoned Christians in this. But if we're willing to do this, if we're willing to do the work, it will be good because we were made for this kind of intimate companionship here. Then again, back to this marriage. Maybe I shouldn't say this marriage because as we move on to look exclusively at verse 24 here, we we go from witnessing the particular marriage in Genesis 2 to, to zooming out, seeing something about marriage more universally. And then this, we see that marriage is an enduring covenant. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Friends, this this is more than a description of what we just witnessed in Genesis 2. These words are instituting and ordaining this relationship we call marriage. This is God saying this this Genesis 2 thing you're seeing here, this marriage, this is not a one-off thing. Right? No, he's instituting and ordaining a covenant relationship that shall be repeated as long as human history endures. Genesis 2 is, is a template here, but the same kind of relationship shall be repeated again and again and again in human history perpetually as long as we're on this side of glory. And you can see the pattern here that this covenant relationship is supposed to follow. It should involve one man and one woman. This is one reason as Christians that we do not believe in the validity of same-sex marriage. Not because we're petty, 
Not because we dislike anyone. Not because we're bigots. But because we believe marriage to be a relationship, an institution of God's ordaining. And therefore, He's the one who gets to define it and determine how it works. And since the beginning, this is what He has said, marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And the pattern goes on. The man is said here to leave his father and his mother. There's a kind of separation from the man's parents for the man, and we can assume for the woman as well. Separation from her parents. And the two come together to begin something new. The husband holds fast to his wife, which is covenantal language there. In this covenant relationship, there's separation from the mother and father. And now this marriage, this new covenant relationship is meant to take precedence over other human relationships, even over one's relationship with their very own parents. And again, you see something of the primacy of intimacy with one's spouse here, an intimacy that is highlighted furthermore in this pattern that we see that the the two become one flesh. The two become one flesh. Michael Scott, it's brilliantly said in a wedding reception speech, Webster's Dictionary defines marriage, or wedding rather, I should say, wedding as the fusing of two metals together with a hot torch. He was obviously wrong in one sense. In another sense, he may have been on to something. Because in marriage, two lives are fused together, as it were, to become one. And of course, we stated earlier, this is, this is speaking to more than just sexual intimacy between a husband and wife, but it also certainly includes that. Reminding us that, that God's intention since the beginning has been for sexual intimacy to only take place within that entire ecosystem of intimacy. It's only meant to take place within this this committed and accountable covenant relationship. And this relationship that's accompanied by a growing intimacy in every sense of the word, it's meant to take place within the binding covenant and relational intimacy of marriage as a means of expressing and cementing that covenantal intimacy that God has created and ordained and given as a gift to humanity for his own purposes and for our pleasure. Friends, we would be remiss to talk about this verse here without talking about its deeper, more ultimate sense. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, the Apostle Paul essentially tells us, yeah, this is about marriage, yeah. But really, ultimately, fundamentally, it's about Christ and His church. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2.24. But then he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, in the beginning, even before the fall, God's intentions were for this covenant relationship he created and called marriage to actually be a a picture of a much larger cosmic reality, the reality of Christ and His relationship with His church. If our lives and marriages kind of feel like that pile of puzzle pieces next to the box and the marriage depicted here 
is like the picture on the puzzle box, while then Christ and the church are the reality that the picture on the puzzle box is actually depicting. Jonathan Edwards claimed this very thing. He said that really at at the core, the, the the most fundamental reality behind all of existence, the reason that this world and the universe and people exist is actually this right here. He said the end for which God created the world is so that he might obtain a spouse for his son. And that spouse is the church, the bride and beloved of Jesus Christ. And so even right from the beginning here in Genesis 2, God put a picture, a display, a drama of that reality on the first pages of Holy Scripture so that even here, even before the fall, we would see God's good and ultimate intentions for us and for this world. And what's more, we even see here in Genesis 2 the foreshadowings of what the Son of God would do in order to obtain His spouse. The Son of God would come and take on human flesh for us just as the man's body was formed here in verse 7. And he not only comes and puts on human flesh, but he lived the perfect life that we ought to have lived. And having lived that life, he died the death we deserve to die in our place so that the penalty we deserve for rejecting our God would be absorbed by him. And he was crucified naked and ashamed on a tree, having his hands and feet nailed to a cross and having his side pierced, just as Adam's side was pierced here, so that by his flesh being opened, we would be brought forth as his bride. And he slept the sleep of death for us for three days. But even more, he was raised on the third day, victorious, being satisfied with the reward of his sleep and suffering, which was this, obtaining the church as his very own bride. And now, as the resurrected bridegroom, he says over us, he says over you this morning, Christian, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, my beloved bride, we are one, you are mine, and I am yours forevermore. And he sings over you. He delights and rejoices over you, much like Adam did over his beloved bride here in Genesis 2. Because Christian, he has longed for you. So much so that he was willing to suffer and die for you, and by doing so, he has procured you now as his very own, which brings him much joy. I want you to see that in this relationship, you are completely seen and completely known. You stand before him completely exposed and yet still completely loved by the Son of God who is completely committed to you. And because of that, I want you to see now that you actually have nothing to fear. This is is what gives us the courage and ability to step forth in vulnerability of being known by one another because we're already completely known and completely loved in Jesus Christ. We already stand completely exposed before Him and completely adored by Him. And so we're thereby empowered to experience this kind of intimacy with one another more and more deeply in our marriages and in our membership 
And not only that, but we're also empowered to let this kind of intimacy overflow into mission in the world wherein we partner in our God-given callings to form and fill the earth and work and keep God's new covenant temple with one another in ways that more and more reflect this garden that we find here in the beginning. Friends, I know that our lives in our marriages in our church may feel sometimes more like that pile of pieces next to this great picture displayed on the box here of Genesis 2 but by God's gospel and grace he's putting us back together again so that we might more faithfully reflect his plans and purposes in the earth depicting the ultimate reality for which God created this world to obtain a spouse for his beloved son So may we open ourselves to God and to one another in these callings. And may He accomplish this purpose in our lives and in our marriages and in our church to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray. And Father, would You seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table? as you remind us of the fact that we are completely seen and completely known by Christ Jesus and yet completely loved, we know this because of what this bread and what this cup represent, that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might be one with him forevermore. And would you strengthen our hearts and our spirits from that reality so that we might step forth in courage to know and be known by one another and to live for your purposes in the earth of forming and filling and working and keeping. And in so doing, would you cause us to be a, an echo of this Edenic reality and a sign of the coming restoration all to the glory and praise of your holy name. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.